Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and for the Middle Eastern Studies series, today my guest is Yoni Furas. Yoni is the author of Educating Palestine, Teaching and Learning History Under the Monday, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Furas through the story of education and the teaching of history in Mandate Palestine, Furos reframes our understanding of the Palestinian and Zionist national movements. The author argues that Palestinian and Hebrew The author argues that Palestinian and Hebrew pedagogy could only be truly understood through an analysis of the conscious or unconscious dialogue between themselves. The conflict over Palestine, the study shows, shaped the way Arabs and Zionists thought, thought and wrote about their past. We will hear about uh, the story of the land of Canaan, for instance. British rule over Palestine promised the Jews a national home, but had no viable policy towards the Palestinians and established an educational system that lacked a sustainable collective ethos. Nevertheless, Palestinian educators were able to produce a national pedagogy that knew how to work with the British and simultaneously promote an ideology of progress and independence that challenged colonial rule. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Yoni, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me for this uh, great podcast, Roberto. So I was wondering, you know, just to kick off the conversation, can you tell us something about yourself and about the origins of the book? So uh, I'm Yoni. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Israel in Klosaba. Um, and um, I was brought up by two immigrants from Uruguay, from, from uh, South America, a small country. I uh, was brought up speaking Spanish and Hebrew, so uh, the whole, and that's not that unique in Israel, uh, having immigrant parents, but I was, um, um, I did grow up in this environment that was not strictly, you know, Israeli, so I did get a sense of other uh, languages and tastes uh, and rhythms, and then I, I did, you know, I'm very... Uh, the story is very casual, right? It's it's the high school, and then I went to the army. But I did li- live for a long time in a commune. I was in, in like this Zionist socialist youth movement, and um, I li- I lived I lived in the commune uh, for a few years, and I did education and no, non formal education um, in this youth movement, which, which was very idealistic, right? Um, and then uh, um, and then I left. Um, like that there was a, a change, ideological change, personal change. I left the movement. I went to the, uh, to study at Tel Aviv University and I discovered the Middle East. Basically, I knew I wanted to study Arabic. I studied Arabic before, uh, but then I turned it into my, uh, um, my life, basically, uh, studying the history of our neighbor, studying the history of, you know, of, uh, of Palestinians, of Palestine, uh, as an Israeli, um, I did I did first degree, second degree, and then uh, I I um, I did my PhD in Oxford, which was also an amazing experience because I never lived abroad, and to get to know these people and uh, such an intellectual environment. Uh, um, and and during my second degree, I met Ami Ayalon, Professor Ami Ayalon, which brought me into Palestinian history. Um, and I wrote my master thesis on Musa Kadmer Husseini and it came out as a book. And then I knew that I wanted to focus on Palestinian history, but I, um, shifted from, uh, uh, political history, uh, uh, and national history into a more nuanced social history. And I chose education and I chose history because I, you know, I'm an historian, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with history, but also as an educator or thought of myself as an educator, I thought of history as something very important. And I thought that 
only if my, you know, only if my, they, we call it chanichim, you know, the, 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 the youths that I work with, with no history, everything will be fine because history can solve uh, all the problems and challenges that we have. And this manipulation of history, use of history, um, I wanted to look at it again now as a scholar and delve into late Ottoman and mandate Palestine and see the role of education and history uh, uh, more specifically in the consolidation of these national movements and of the conflict. Another thing is that we meet the, the, we meet uh, now, it's a decade after I started doing this. Um, now I am, you know, I have three kids. It's a different story. My life is different. Everything has changed. When I, when the book was published, it was COVID. It was a, a global pandemic. Now we have demonstrations in the streets. I meet this uh, work again, and I am, and I think of it differently. I would have written it uh, differently today, and everything has changed. And th that's also right, part of the magic of history that it constantly challenges you and then makes you think. You know, rethink. So th this podcast is is interesting in that sense as well. And you're right. You know, the context changes uh, everything, particularly when we look back at uh, our books. And you're right, you know, if I were to go back uh, 15 years ago when I wrote mine, I will probably write it in a very different way. Uh, but, you know, it was the product of that moment in, in time that also was connected to our own uh, personal life. Now, I want to ask you something about uh, the, the goals of the book. Can you give us a sense of what is that you want to achieve talking about education and particularly talking about history textbooks? So the goals are, um, they're a bit entang entangled and complicated, right? So I wanted, I wanted to give a thicker description of Palestinian education system. Um, so there's great work that's been done on this topic, but I wanted it to make it more social and more cultural and write more about the people that, did, uh, that, that were behind uh, this uh, system, educators, students, and also bureaucrats and administrators. Um, uh, Hebrew education, it you know, the, the Zionist movement in general is uh, you know got the attention of uh, many many scholars um, in Israel across the world, and it's also a community that was highly literate and wrote its and and, and obsessively wrote about itself all the time. So um, what I wanted to do is not, you know, to say something very new about the Hebrew uh, Hebrew education or Hebrew uh, the, the the instruction of history is uh, to put this history of education in dialogue or non-dialogue with the Palestinians or you know with Palestinian education um, uh, to show basically that first of all to give my uh, uh, angle on. Palestinian education in late Ottoman and mandate Palestine, and then juxtapose it next to or with in dialogue, without the dialogue, with the Hebrew uh, education system. And basically what I want to show, and I hope I I convince the reader, is that you cannot think of uh, Palestinian education in Palestine without taking into consideration uh, uh, Hebrew education, and everything that means, and you cannot think about Hebrew or Zionist education in Palestine without taking into consideration Palestinian education and Palestinian in general. And I move back and forth in the book, and it was very uh, tiring and complicated to do it because, uh, but that's that's the task that I chose, right? To go back and forth between the two communities, and some of it is because I'm an, an Israeli today, and I also move back and forth, right? So that's my this personal issue, and I uh, it found itself into the book. I really like the idea that uh, you don't take issues with the fact that this is a book, this is an academic work, but it's also tight and connected to your personal life. And I think this is very important because it's also very true of many works. Now, let me ask a question about sources. So you work with sources in English, Arabic, Hebrew, and... I was wondering if you can tell us, you know, what kind of material you collected and look at, and also if you can place your work within a specific methodological framework. 
Yeah, so that's part part of the complication, right? Because you talk about these two communities, and you there are basically three or maybe four languages. Uh, the three being uh, Arabic, Hebrew, and English. So this this basically from the start, it's it's complicated because um, and also because you also collect the sources from different places, and also we have a basic problem or issue or challenge with Palestinian sources, which we you obviously know very well, is that Palestine still does not exist. There is no sovereign state and there are no uh, national archives. So you have to pick that up from either Israeli sources or uh, independent or non-formal uh, 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 places um, uh, in the West Bank, in Israel. So it's much more complicated. Um, so looking back at the, this project now, after, uh, three years after it was completed, um, I, I, I think of myself, I hope I'll get back to this, but I think of myself as a hoarder of sources, right? Um, when I started, I wanted to collect everything that was written, everything I could find about, uh, education and in Palestine. Why? First of all, because it was lost, right? The, the, the files of the education department don't exist. They were lost somehow after 48, somehow or not somehow. Um, uh, people are in the diaspora. The villages were ruined. So the, there's, there's a task here, right? You need to rebuild it. So I was a hoarder because I had a task that I thought that was very meaningful, right? To try to rebuild this uh, uh, system. Um, so I worked at wherever there were but something about education, I went out, I mean, within the time that I had, I went to archives in Israel, I went to colonial archives in the UK, I went to uh, private archives, I went to interview people, um, and I wanted to compile it all, and also textbooks that you've mentioned. Um, so all of this uh, uh, was was in, an, in, in this uh, uh, complicated attempt to um, um, to build a, a cohesive story of what I said before, right? Of uh, a, a Palestinian national movement, uh, a Zionist movement that are building their own national narrative and using uh, the education system to um, using the education system to convince the community of you know of of how right they are and why they are. Uh, entitled to this and that and so on. And I, I think I, uh, I covered. I think I covered the the the, the sources issue. Moving to the chapters, chapter one and two are giving the readers an overview of education in the late Ottoman era and the roots of educational segregation. Can you summarize for us both chapters? Um, so chapter one tries to tell the story of what happens in the late dec decades of the 19th century into uh, the 20th century in both uh, Palestinian uh, education and um, Hebrew education. And we have the bigger story is that uh, more and more Arabs are, are literate, are becoming literate, right? From a small community, an urban elite that has this capacity, right, that uh, can pay for private education and become learned uh, um, we see more and more people enjoying modern education either in the missionary schools which were very important in Bilad al-Shab or uh, the Ottoman government education that was also becoming wider but not that much in Palestine in Palestine missionary education led the scene especially in relation to the people that I, I discuss in the uh, um, in the book, um, and on the other hand, the Hebrew education system. So Jews are not, most Jews, of course, are not in Palestine, but Z and Zionism starts and then continues also in Europe, specifically Eastern Europe. Um, and chapter one tries to um, show this development on the one hand, what's going on in Eastern Europe and in uh, and what's happening on the ground in Palestine and a community that wants to educate its people, a community that starts to imagine uh, uh, um, its own identity, Arab, modern uh, Ottoman or Ottoman Arab, um, and later also Palestinian. Um, and all of that ha finds its way 
into the education system and also into um, thoughts and uh, texts um, that uh, discuss the problem and challenges and also into pedagogic material and textbooks. For the Jews, it's different because it has, you know, we are talking about a highly literate community that already has textbooks from the late 19th century and it's imported into the educational scene in Palestine. Uh, chapter two um, discusses segregation. So another thing that's important that we haven't discussed until now is the fact that, um, interestingly enough, or surprisingly or not surprisingly, the two education systems grew apart. Uh, right? We have two communities um, or more than the two communities uh, that are not educating their kids together. Um so I, I try to understand the segregation, and, and this is very, very banal, right? Because when you think back, right, of course, every community educates its own people, and that's why it's segregated, and they had two uh, distinct projects. So what I did, I, I, tried to, um, I, I, I tried to become smart, right? Um, I didn't examine why it was segregated. I, I, I showed how the people who fought segregation, how weak they were, and how uh, uh, their efforts were in the margins, and they could not fight basically the 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 segregation as it came. You know how strong it was. So that's that's what I tried to do. I showed that people always talked about, you know, the Zionists. We need to teach Arabic. We need to involve um, uh, the Arabs in our project. Not only to convince them that you know the Zionist project is so good and it would do so well to them but also because this could be a joint project they could could be we could cooperate with the, with the arabs uh, to build this country right but it never succeeded it never materialized and until now until now uh, um um jews and israelis don't speak arabic right the, the jews they don't speak arabic they're not in uh, uh, colloquial arabic is not instructed in schools uh, in elementary education anywhere I think and there's very little in secondary education um, and similarly um, um, there's challenges in that sense with the Palestinians uh, out of different reasons but the chapter it tries to look at the people who thought differently uh, and how this different thought was actually uh, how it failed how this imagery how this vision uh, could not materialize because there was uh, a greater powers at stake. You mentioned that in your book you talk about uh, a lot of uh, individuals. And it's true that the book obviously offers the possibility to delve into a number of uh, very interesting and fascinating characters. But I'm curious about two that I personally believe are the most relevant characters in the debate, Khalil Sakakini and Eliezer Ben-Yehuda. Can you give us a sense about who are these people and their role in your narrative? I think Khalil Sakakini is, uh, you know, people wrote a lot about Khalil Sakakini and his role in, in uh, Palestinian national movement. He was very active nationally, but he was also a pedagogue and he was also a very active uh, uh, a pedagogue. He wrote textbooks. And he thought of education. He also visited the United States and saw other, you know, types of education. And before the demise of the Ottoman Empire, he established the Dusturia School, which you know, and um, uh, with uh, Jamil al Jamil al Khalid, Jamil Hussein, Jamil al Khalidi, um, and uh, he and this was and this was a different school because Sekakini wanted uh, an Arab. And it was cross-denominational, and it had Jewish students and Christian students and Muslim students. And Sekakini is prominent because he was a visionary in the sense of education. Um, and he also worked in the Department of Education. He didn't want to work at the Department of Education, but then he, you know, he, he resigned when Herbert Samuel was uh, appointed a high commissioner. Um, uh, but when, when the British came, actually, they saw him as uh, they saw him fit to lead or to be the most, I think, prominent Arab in the education department. He refused. He left. Uh, he was supposed to 
um, uh, uh, to be the, the principal of the, the teacher tra- training college at Kuliyat al Arabiya in uh, Jerusalem. And he, and he resigned after Herbert Sam was appointed. And uh, later, I think because of financial issues, he came back to the department and was the, the, the inspector of Arabic. Um, and then he established the Narda College, Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. So we have a visionary. We have someone with no like actual uh, formal education as we see in the West, right? He has no PhD, he has no uh, official uh, uh, accreditation, but he is extremely active in designing his idea of a modern Arab, more modern Palestinian. And he writes textbooks and he, he looks at Arabic differently. He wants to liberate uh, education from this rigid, uh, uh, very official, hierarchical uh, uh, notion that was um, that was very hegemonic at the time in, in Arab schools. Um, and he did, and he, I, I think he failed in revolutionizing the system, but he, his image was very important in the educational scene. Khalid Sakakini was important. I personally think that Ahmad Samad al-Khalidi was more important than him. I think he took uh, what he did not want to do. He did know how to work with the British. He worked very well with Bauman. He worked very, very well with uh, uh, Farrell. Um, the the directors of education uh, in the mandate, and he was basically the one who turned the Kuli al-Arabiya, the most important uh, high, secondary uh, school in Palestine, into uh, like an Eton or Harrow, a, a Palestinian Eton or Palestinian Harrow, um, constructing or establishing this generation of educated Palestinians uh, that were supposed to build the future of Palestine. And the tragedy about the Kuli al-Arabi and perhaps Ahmed Samech al-Khalidi uh, himself, you know, he died a few years after the Nakbe. He didn't survive this transformation, right, becoming a, a refugee. And there were there were uh, actually uh, blueprints, right? Uh, there were uh, programs to turn the Kuli al-Arabi into a college, a full college, and he was supposed to lead this, and it all ended in 1948. Uh, and now about Eliezer ben Yehuda, I don't know if you mean Eliezer ben Yehuda or Bauch ben Yehuda. Eliezer ben Yehuda is important because he was, you know, he was very prominent in these, you know, this group of Jews in Jerusalem that wanted to speak Hebrew, um, uh, to, to write and also to write for children in Hebrew and also even uh, uh, a textbook. You know, he wrote a history textbook in Hebrew, which is very special because there you can see the difference between what was between Bauch ben Yehuda and Eliezer ben Yehuda. If you take Eliezer ben Yehuda's book, and how he treats the Arab and Arab history and his relationship with Islam uh, is uh, very different than what you see uh, uh, later. So Eliezer ben Yehuda, who lives in Jerusalem, comes from Eastern Europe, I think, uh, comes to comes to Palestine and starts writing and starts talking uh, in Hebrew. Uh, and then he writes this book. And this book, uh, for example, he talks about how uh, uh, the Jews are the allies of the Arabs and how Jews and Arabs uh, work very well together uh, and how the golden age was a shared one and then when you move to Bauch Ben Yehuda another Ben Yehuda who used to be the principal of Gimnasia Elzelia a very important school in Tel Aviv you see that that was forgotten during the mandate and the Arabs are not the allies of the Jews and the Arabs are that ruined the country when they ruled it for so many years right uh, and that our return to the country is actually to uh, rebuild what they have ruined um, so this, the, we have two Ben Yehudas, but very different uh, Ben Yehudas and also different generations, right? Late Ottoman period, we see a different discussion of the Arabs and Islamic history. And, and during the mandate, we see a completely different story when it comes to uh, the Arabs and their history um, and so on. But if I can just add, um, during the mandate, we have a new generation of uh, educators um, who became very influential and prominent during the mandate. They were younger. They grew up when the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, ceased to exist. People like Darwish al-Maghdadi, people like Mahmoud al-Abidi, people like uh, uh, Nikola Ziyadi. This is not prominent Jerusalemites. These are people from uh, al-Nasri, people from Taibe, people from uh, or Khalil Totah, people from Amallah, Brzeit. They, they come from the periphery. They, they come from a middle class or even lower class. And they uh, uh, they become the voice of uh, um, of the 
younger generations in the 1930s and the 1940s, which is what the young people that went to school needed. They needed a new story, uh, and they supplied it. People like Mikdadi, Dolwazi, Akam Zaitar, and so on and so forth. I want to ask you something before delving into chapter four, which I believe is the central chapter, and it's like the richest in terms of a discussion about uh, history textbooks. Moving forward after the introductory chapters, you start talking about education of the national other. Can you speak about this process? Yes. Um, so first of all, history textbooks, we mentioned this. So uh, first of all, I needed to find these books, right? Uh, and what's frustrating is that I found many because there was another PhD written that also discussed this, right? A very good PhD on on, on history instruction in Palestine. Uh, but then he found like 10 or 20 textbooks. And then I went and I found like 10 or 20 more. Uh, and then I had to read all these textbooks, uh, which was also, which was also, it was fascinating, but it was a lot of work. And I, you know, I said I was a hoarder. I, I, I refused to finish the PhD without finding everything, right? Without, uh, 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 without, you know, uh, tapping my own shoulder that, you know, I found uh, all, all the textbooks. So, um, so we have a lot. They were written between the, you know, you have books from the 1920s, you have books from the 1930s, you have books from the 1940s. Uh, it's an industry that did not stop. And it was an independent industry because the British, they didn't want to publish uh, the books. Um, um, they didn't accept the books that were published locally. Uh, they didn't support it. So they did it all by themselves. Um, and that's why their quality uh, was compromised. And that's why there are other issues related to the textbook. Uh, for the Jews, it, it's also, it's immense. Uh, you have tens of, of books, of textbooks, um, and you have, you know, written by also a large community that I tried to write about in the book. Um, and and then let's let's move to the national other, what you asked. The national other, basically what I, wanted, what I was interested in, I wanted to see how um, Palestinians write about Jews, Jewish history, and about Zionism, and I wanted to see how um, uh, the Zionists write about Islam, Arabs, and uh, Arab history and Islamic history. Um, and at the beginning, you know, also you come with this uh, with this uh, preconceived notion that you know what you're going to find, um, and some of it you did you you do find what you want, and sometimes you find what you want because that's what you're looking for. Right, but uh, I was also surprised. For example, I was surprised to see uh, the late Ottoman texts writing about uh, you know Jews so favorably in uh, in modern you know Nadawi publications, um, and I was also surprised to see texts like Eliezer ben Yudas and others writing about the connection with the Arabs and how important it was for the Jews in their history. Um, you see how. Um, um, this new reality, post-World War reality of, of uh, the land promised to the Jews to establish a national home, the Palestinians doing all they can to have their own national home against this colonial project. And you see how this is, from, from the very start, is written in the textbooks. In uh, Khalil Totah and uh, Omar Salah al-Barouti, their, their book, Tariq Palestine, they write Tariq Palestine and they say in the beginning, Palestine is, is uh, artificial. It's a creation that's, it's a non-creation. It has no natural borders. And now let's tell you its history. Are we uh, uh, Shamis? Are we Greater Syria? Are we Palestinians? Are we both? So this is, I mean, if you go and read a few hundred pages of this book, it's a masterwork. Uh, and it's very complicated. And it was the first thing that I did when I started working on this book. And it took me a long time to read it. Um, you see how they work with this reality. It's very anti-British. Uh, it's also very anti-Jewish. And it's also anti-Zionist, this book. Um, and and at the same time, it's fascinating because they try to set the Pnism or Pal Palestine nationalism is. Uh, so that's Khalid Toda and Omar Salah al-Barwuthi. And then you have of Miqdadi and Zoytar, uh, our history in, in, in stories, right? Trying to describe uh, what an Arab is. 
and how noble the Arabs are. Um, and within that, uh, you would see the depiction of, uh, for example, the Jewish settlement as uh, as as a colony, as as part colonial project. You find that already in the 1930s in Darush al-Qadadi and in other uh, in relation to uh, Jewish uh, Hebrew history textbooks, you would see how uh, the Arabs are usually depicted as um, uh, in, in, in a negative way, in one way or the other. But the diaspora in general is, is depicted negatively because the project was to show that the Jews can only rule themselves um, and the, the only natural habit is in Islam and the only way to live it is by ruling themselves. So, so everything that where the Jews were ruled someplace else, it's negative. Uh, the people who rule them are, in a way, negative. Um, and it all serves this project of returning to Palestine, right? We have the return to Palestine and make all of the rest. Uh, so this is this is very distinctive. When you move from the late Ottoman, you know, the, the mandate period has a new history. The conflict writes itself uh, uh, into the history. And, and basically, I think until now, that's dominating narrative uh, of both national movements. Now, you answered already part of my next question, which is related to chapter four. And chapter four is about uh, uh, history textbooks. So I was wondering if you can give us a taste of the general history of textbooks in Palestine, and perhaps again, pick up a little bit more about what you already said about the Arab and the Hebrew ones. And also I'm interested in this concept that you mentioned in the book, where you talk about uh, the fact that this was a way to encounter the national other. Can you explain a little bit more of this idea? You know, there's this saying, right? Uh, that uh, what, what is nationalism? Nationalism is having a, your own uh, failed or mistaken uh, story uh, of the past and an enemy. Uh, so the enemy is very important. The enemy or the other, right? You built your own identity on what you're not and what you ought to be and this sort of authenticity that you need to return to. And this is very important in all sorts of nationalisms, right? And basically in um, all in identity, right? In general, uh, we're two academics. We have the academic habitus and we know what it is and you know, we know what it's not. Um, so that's very important for our world as well. And it's also important to um, collectivities and communities in general. So what they're not, right? So the national other is um, the other that is not part of your community and how he is different and how you want to become different than he is or similar um, and how um, his presence affects you. And I tried, I tried uh, hard to find this presence and how it affected both uh, communities. And it was hard because they didn't talk about it. They didn't have like a dialogue about it, the two. We don't have a, like a you know, massive documentation of Arabs meeting Jews and talking about their uh, education systems. We do have a lot of um, Arabs, of Palestinians writing about how Jews are educating themselves, and we have a lot of, of, of you know uh, Zionist educators, educators writing about how uh, Palestinians are educating themselves. So this is the national other. This it's a national other that has no dialogue, but does have a notion or thinks he has uh, an idea of what's going on in the other community. And it was easier before 1948 because um, the Arabs were still here, right? The Palestinians were still here. They were not displaced and they were the majority. So the Zionists see these natives, right? They come to the country, they see a native population. They see the Falah. They see its connection to the land. 
Um, it's part of the land. They want to become. They want to leave the office. They want to leave the table. They want to leave the documents and and the uh, Luftgeschäft, right? And they want to go to back to the soil and become one with the soil. Why? Because they're doing it. And they see them there. And they know that the only way to occupy the country and do it well is through the periphery, getting out of the city, leaving this exilic uh, 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 image that they have that was false anyway, but that's what they thought about themselves and go back to Nate and, and go back to go back to becoming natives. So that's that's the national other and that's why it's so important you know that the Palestinians around them. It's hard to imagine it today, but you if you were in Tel Aviv at the time, you had Jaffa and it was filled with Arabs and it was a big city, right? And if you'd go south or north or east, you would see them and they were in a predominantly right a rural society and that's what they did. And it was theirs. Palestine was theirs. And part of, you know, uh, curing this diasporic image of Jew was through um, going out and working the land um, and uh, and becoming, you know, a native. So that's 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 why the Palestinians was, were so important. Um, for the other side, it was the opposite. The Palestinians, and it, it had, you know, it had a lot to do with the Jews, but it had a lot to do also with a more general process that was going on in the, in the Middle East, is becoming Effendi, right? What Lucy Rizova writes about, the, the new Effendia. The Arabs wanted the opposite. They wanted to become moderate. And becoming moderate was leaving the field and leaving agriculture and becoming an Effendi. Uh, this meant to become one with civilization, uh, Hadara, Madani, uh, um, right? And this was also um, social mobility. So the mandate is also very volatile in sense of economics, and, and there are more people uh, demographically and less land. So they needed to go and leave the the country. So it's 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 cultural, it's economic, but it's also national, because the nation, because Palestine could only be won by educated people. Um, and educated people wear suits and educated people look uh, uh, to the entire world and they have uh, uh, um, and they know languages, they know English very well, they are educated and the field is less important. And I show in the book, I show the graduates of Kaduli uh, school with, uh, you know, uh, with um, short, very short hair and wearing sandals and, and looking very simple, um, not like the Falah, but very um, modest. And, and, I, and I show the graduates of Qadouri uh, or Najah uh, in Nablus or uh, the graduates of the Kuliyat Arabiya, all wearing suits, um, all very dis- uh, uh, respected, right? These, these uh, um, Effendis. So we have uh, two national projects two education systems that want to that aspire to be the masters of the land of an independent country that lead their students to a sense of uh, national unity but both do it very differently in the sense of you know of of where they um want to lead their students to one to the periphery and to the land and one to modernism and uh, a more um, uh, like their own image of a sophisticated cosmopolitan person graduate. But you also asked about, I wanted to know a little bit more about, uh, you know, the history of textbooks in Palestine. You talked about obviously the differences (laughs) between the Arab and the Hebrew ones, but I was just wondering, you know, what are these uh, history textbooks essentially and, uh, you know, how did it work, their publications? And, uh, you know, can you just give us a sense of uh, what they're talking about, really? So the textbooks usually are, so we have a genre of textbooks. And I think where anywhere in the world you would go and look for 
history textbooks, you basically would find the same thing, right? You would see um, a, a history of a nation. You would see it in the far uh, past, and you'll see it's um, it has its own historic unity, and then there's a conflict, and then they either win or lose. But what's important is that they have the, their national essence, right? They have the essence, which is the Neumah. Uma, right? Same word in Hebrew and Arabic. And when the Ottoman Empire becomes like this uh, educating state, it starts producing its history textbooks. And when the Jews start uh, producing their own Zionist history textbooks, we have these two industries, but they don't operate in a void. The Egyptian state is doing that. Um, the missionaries are doing that. The United Kingdom and British Empire is doing this. And the French are doing this. So, or, or the Americans are doing this. So the ambient is, right, you have in the 19th century, you have nations who start to educate their uh, uh, public. Um, so the Palestinian textbook and the Zionist textbook is basically very similar in the sense that it tries to do the same as the French, the American, the Egyptian, and so on and so forth. For the for for, for the um, um, Palestinian one, the Egyptian uh, textbooks were very important. Egypt, you know, it's Umm al-Dunya. Uh, it's uh, it leads the Arab world, and the the blueprint or the model of a textbook, and also the stories themselves, and also the language was easy because they, you know, the British brought it with them. Uh, it got there. Uh, uh, under the, you know, Khadival Egypt, it was very important. And you see that in Palestinian textbooks, the prominence of Egyptian textbooks. Um, for the Hebrew uh, education systems, uh, textbooks, you see the influence of the work of uh, Dubnov, Simon Dubnov, uh, and his, uh, you know, his magnum uh, opus on, on Jewish history, and later other uh, histories. You have prominent historians writing history, and then you see these educators basically summing up ideas and putting them into these uh, books in Palestinian, in, generally in the Middle East. For, for Arabs, for example, you have Ancient Times by um, Breastfit, the Egyptologist, uh, that was translated in 1924, I think, by the AUB. Uh, and it was also very important for these uh, writers of textbooks. They took much of it, they copied uh, some of it, uh, and they put it into their textbooks. So what's interesting, or what I found that it's interesting, not not copying, not co not co copying, or or that the plagiarism, or is how they told a distinctive story, is how when a Palestinian takes an Egyptian story about, for example, the occupation of Palestine under Ibrahim Basha in the 1830s, they suddenly talk about the revolt against the against the Egyptians because. This is like a, a proto-nationalism, right? Because the the Palestinian peasant was not a sucker, and he revolted against the Egyptians, and he would also fight the British occupation. So, what was interesting about the Palestinian textbook is how these different stories that come either from Beirut or from Cairo um, become Palestinian. And for Hebrew uh, and Zionist education, it was interesting how the greater stories about uh, the Jews, be, they ha you know, go through a process of Palestinization, right? They become focused on the land of Israel. They become, uh, everything is about this country and this land, and you can only become a people if you are here. So that's also a shift that we see uh, in the 20th century. I want to ask you something, a specific topic. Nowadays, when we think about archaeology and ancient past of uh, the land of Israel and Palestine, these are very contested issues. So I was wondering, how did both communities engage with and discuss ancient history, particularly the question about ancient canon? So yeah, that's that I, that's something that I found uh, in the textbooks. I was surprised to find it was uh, uh, it was a revelation for me. Um, first of all, also here we are talking about. Uh, Christian Europe and its discovery of ancient history and philologists 
sitting in universities in Berlin and in London and in Vienna and studying ancient history and look at, uh, looking at the Bible and trying to find historic context in this book, which is not a history book that we now know, right? Uh, I mean, some of us. The Jews and the Arabs, they took this discourse, this sort of quasi-scientific uh, discourse uh, um, about history and the and they tried to manipulate it and instrumentalize it for their own national purpose, which is basically what the Germans did uh, and the French did. Everyone did this, right? Uh, so we are all doing basically the same. That's another discovery that I, you know, I can tell you now. Um, maybe it's not that uh, obvious in the book that what they did was not um, special. Um, but was, what was special is how they used it for their own purposes. So Canaan, ancient Canaan, was uh, occupied uh, by the um, uh, by the people of Israel that were coming from the desert. So in the Hebrew textbooks, this is the first return, right? They come back from the diaspora, and this is a story worth telling, right? They come back, they conquer the land of Canaan, and they um, become... Uh, masters of their own house. For the Palestinians, it's the opposite. The Hebrews are the Jews, right? They're coming back. They're the Zionists now. And they want to, again, to take our land. And they did it before. And in these books that start talking about, right, about uh, ancient Canaan, they start talking about um, uh, the, the civilization that the Jews came the, the, the civilization that was already here when the Jews came, right? The Canaanites that had great cities and a great culture, a very advanced and modern culture, and the Jews came and took it from them. Um, and it was interesting to see how early this story was taken by the Palestinians to say, to warn current day Palestinians, listen, what happened before could happen again unless, Right? Uh, it's like a message of warning, and for I think for the for, for the Jews, for the Zionists, um, it was clean, right? They came to Canaan before, and then they built their own country, the, their own state, the state of Judea, and then they built Jerusalem, and they that they they built the temple. It was the beginning of Jewish sovereignty over their country that then was lost. And that's why the Jews, they don't study that much what happened when, um, since the Second Temple was demolished, right? Until Zionism came and, you know, with, with this objective of returning the Jews to the land of Israel. So for both nations, this was an interesting story. What I also found during the mandate is that the racial issue was also important for both people, although they were targeted for their race, right? The Jews were talking about their Semitism. They borrowed this idea of Semitism and racial uh, affinities, right, with the with the Canaanites. You can find uh, examples in the books of uh, uh, scholars talking about how their noses uh, resemble the noses of Canaanites um, and how this connection actually ties them to the land and it's interesting because they came here from abroad they were strangers in this country and they needed a connection so being semitic and saying that you were actually racially connected to this place gives you claim over the country and gives you a, a, a kushan over its history right a kushan is the land in, in ottoman turkish uh, and for for the Arabs, it was the same because they said also they were Semitic, right? We are part of the Semitic family um, and we are actually part of, and this also was a claim to place the Arabs within a greater civilization that gave the world, right, laws, that gave the world uh, 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 scripture, that gave, that gave the world industry, that gave the world basically, you know, the ancient civilization, ancient Semitic civilizations that started everything. So for both people, it was um, uh, being set, being being a Semite uh, was um, was important.
I'm going to now cover the last few chapters together and have uh, a long questions that takes into account uh, the business of teaching history, but also the business of the students. And so, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, in the end of the book, you also talk about the question of learning history. And so I was wondering if you can give us a sense of, uh, given both communities, the Jewish and the Arabs, so how did the teaching work, but also how was the experience of the students in a classroom? So we have two distinctively different education systems. First of all, it's everything is um, um, it's divided. It's extremely divided. You have the missionary schools. You have the private schools. You have national schools. You have the education department established by the British. The Jews have the different currents in, uh, uh, in the education systems, the labor, the Mizrahi, the general. They also have Haredim that I don't discuss in the book. Um, so this is just... When we begin to talk about education during the mandate, we need to understand that um, it's an extremely complex system. Okay, so this is the first thing. So most Arabs were educated. Most Arabs were not educated. Okay, this is the, the this, this is this, our starting point. We're talking about the minority that would um, gradually gain elementary education of four to five years. So this is this is a community that's predominantly illiterate and a very small minority would go to secondary education most of it is pride it's missionary some of it is national like Najah school in Nablus like Audat al-Ma'arif in Jerusalem so that's secondary private national schools and in the uh, elite secondary full secondary schools in like in Jerusalem or in the later 30s, El uh, Amiria in Yaffa. So, um, but who controlled this system? So, uh, it was headed, the colonial education department established by the British. It was the first time Palestine had its own education system that uh, came after uh, these, uh, com- um, uh, the Ministry of Education that was in Istanbul and the education committees uh, of every Sanjak and then uh, every um, like a, a city or town. So we have colonial education department, always run by a British man on the spot. It was Bear, Bauman, it was Farrell, and it was Bunsen. Uh, these three um, were heading this colonial system, which started with a problem because it had no horizons, right? The British came and they promised a national home for the Jews, but what about Palestinians. So if they don't have a political project, if they don't have like a future image of what the state should be, so how should their education be? So they have a very, um, um, they, they start working uh, with a big problem as edu- as colonial educators. It's a huge problem. And until now, it's, it's still a problem, right? Because how do you educate without a future image. For the Jews, it was very simple. They were independent, they were autonomous, uh, very little uh, intervention by the British. Uh, They could write their own curricula. They could uh, uh, decide what to say to the kids, uh, what to teach them and what books and so on and so forth. The Palestinians did not have the know-how. They were not given the know-how. They didn't have the funds, right? It's we said it's a rural society, very poor society. They didn't have the infrastructure to um, establish their own education system. So it was ruled by the British. It had no uh, hori- like future image, no horizons. And they start their work with, uh, uh, they start working with this problematic uh, haphazard uh, uh, beginning, right? And this will remain until 1948. Um, very little uh, emphasis on being Palestinian or being Arab and Arab pride and national pride and very little uh, idea and notion of homeland and a present, right? Who are we? What do we want? Where are we going? This is for every, you know, our national education systems for me, maybe for you as well in in Italy. um, I knew what I was, right? And I I knew where I was going and what's my future. Um, as a citizen of this country, 
it was the most important thing for me. I, I, I now I understand it. I understand it now as a parent. You know, I have two boys in the education system, one new boy that will soon enter. And I see how important this story is to them, to their notion of self. The Palestinians were de denied of this notion, right? Because the British promised the country to another people um, and they didn't have a solution for this. And the Palestinians could not do it by themselves. They didn't. Uh, they did it on the margins, right? Um, they had national school. They had, had their own pedagogues, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to educate everyone, to collect tax, different taxes, to establish their own. It started to materialize at the end of the mandate. End of the mandate, you have more the uh, Palestinian civil society is and is more able and capable to run its own and administer its own education. But the British were very cautious of let, of giving them anything in the general nationwide level. Uh, so this is this is true for all other, you know, administrative posts in the mandate is that Palestinians were not given the lead. Where, the, where, where were they given the lead? In religion. There was a Muslim, right? Uh, they thought, mistakenly thought, that if they would put everything on religion, it would solve the national problem and the issue of self-determination and independence. And we know that was a huge mistake that they did. Um, but they, um, but they were uh, tied, or at least when you look at the at the documents of the time, uh, the people, the men on the spot, they were they thought they were tied. Like Bauman, for example, when he thought they was coming to Palestine for for a year or two, then he would leave. He hated the place. Bowen was the architect of the colonial education department. And from the beginning, he said, this could not work. This project uh, is not sustainable. And uh, we need to think of other solutions. And he knew what he was talking about because he wrote the syllabus. Uh, and he filled it with uh, Islamic history and, you know, classic history. But there was no presence because he was very afraid that he was, he, he was afraid that he, he came from Egypt, he came from Iraq. He saw what happened when nationalism uh, woke. So he was very afraid on the one hand, but on the other, he was also frustrated because of the tools that he was given by the British. So one colonial uh, uh, system headed by a Brit, a graduate of Oxford, New College, Bauman, and an independent autonomous uh, Hebrew system universal a hundred percent of uh, Jewish kids or almost a hundred percent of secular Jewish kids went to these schools they were literate they produced a lot of texts uh, and they uh, were taught a very national uh, unified curriculum uh, in which uh, you know we and us and what we want to do and what we aspire and this Hebrew project everyone needs to talk Hebrew and uh, forget about Yiddish and forget about Arabic and forget about all the other languages, uh, and they succeeded. I mean, they succeeded. If you you, you need to re-examine their goals, but if for their own for for, for their own goals, they they succeeded. They had they uh, they raised a new generation of Hebrew speaking reading uh, youths, right? And they were uh, ready to fight for what they believe in. So in that sense, they succeeded. Palestinian story, it was not. The story, uh, uh, education was uh, very um, modestly funded by the government. Only a fraction uh, was given to education. Very uh, little opening of new schools. Uh, um, uh, secondary education was scarce. Um, many problems, uh, lack of teachers, and so on and so forth. Um, it's a long story. Yeah. I have one last question, and it's really based on the epilogue of the book. So, at the very end, you tell the story of a librarian asking you to sum up your research. And I was wondering if you can share the answer with us. Yeah, so first of all, what's, she, I didn't like her uh, comment because she said, if you can't summarize in one, in one sentence, uh, so, I mean, our listeners, if you, if you reach this point, you all you can already uh, notice that I can't, that I don't know how to sum up anything. I'm very bad at summing up. Um, but if there's only, if, if, 
if I can try and look at the projects in hindsight, um, I, I tried to, first of all, place the Palestinian story of educators and, uh, of, and education um, and, and this idea of sociology of Palestinian knowledge and give it its place in history, right? And the whole idea of, 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 of teaching history um, and, and teaching in general and the people that did it and then take it and put it next to the Zionist education and the Zionist history teaching and see how they interact or don't interact and how this interaction or non-interaction affected what happened afterwards. Um, and it's a history of, you know, it's like Walter Benjamin's Angel of History and this storm of progress, right? It's this, uh, uh, when you look back, you know, I ask my students about modernity and they like, and they say modernity, modernity is computers, modernity is, and I, and when I think of modernity, I think of Auschwitz, right? And I, we are, we're concluding our interview, but what is project, what is uh, progress? What is development? Development is also tragedy. So the way it evolved uh, ended up in tragedy or uh, theory, you know, of, of tragedies. So um, I tried, I tried explaining or I tried to look into uh, this tragedy through education and through the historical narrative. This was Yoni Furas, author of Educating Palestine, Teaching and Learning History Under the Mandate, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Yoni, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening, Roberto, and thank you for inviting me. It was great.